Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation, folks. This is Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. And it's good to be back with you, Riley. Glad to have you back. Thank you, yeah, after being sick and whatnot. This week... Episode 39, we'll be talking about poetry in the sacred. I'm excited to talk about this. I know it's something that's near and dear to your heart, too. Yeah, you know, anything artistic that brings out uh, new meaning or just augments my understanding of things, I, I like to dive into that. Yeah, let's do it. So first, you know, the first thing that occurs to me to say about this topic is let's distinguish between poetry and prose. What is it that makes poetry different from prose in a qualitative way? Well, I I can't really speak to that probably as authoritatively as you can, but I will say that as far as poetry is concerned, my understanding is it's really not to point towards any, you know, historical or objective truth. All it's really trying to do is give you another way to see or experience some some truth. That's really well put. Good point. You know, thinking more abstractly about it, I would say, as I was taught, the difference between poetry and what is prose would be that poetry is meant to speak straight to the heart. It's meant to speak to the emotions. It's emotional, whereas Prose is more propositional, right? Mm-hmm. A, a philosopher writes to you something, and, and anyone writing in, in narrative really or is trying to make some kind of, to put forward some kind of proposition, whereas poetry is not. It's just speaking straight to the heart. Yeah, it's almost more inherently spiritual because of that, right? Yeah. We have our we have our psychologically our psychological or mental processes that kind of take over when you're reading propositional language versus when you're reading poetry you're almost not even reading it with your eyes. You know, a lot of times hearing spoken poetry is so much more of a powerful experience than just reading it without the the voiced words. Yeah, and so that point. in that way, it, you know, it just speaks to you in a different way. It's not a mental process. Right, straight to the heart, bypassing the, the ratiocination, right, which is discursive thought and going straight to the heart. So, you know, the the Arabic word for poet, I always like to point this out, is sha'ir. Sha'ir means literally feeler, right? This is the one who feels. It's the active participle. That's the part of speech for grammar nerds. So this is the one who feels. And it's actually etymologically related to shir, which is hair. And you can tell the, the similarity in the sound, right? They come from the same triconsonantal root. So you have sha'ir, and shir. And so this means hair, which means the poet is the one who feels with hair sensitivity. Doesn't that sound like a poet? Yeah, it puts it almost like it puts your your hair on end. It stands up the hairs on end type thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the poet seems to be able to communicate in words what we feel that we can't sometimes communicate in words. Yeah, can only be felt, almost like the wind, right? How do you feel the wind? You, you feel it rushing through your hair. Right, and so the poet somehow puts these things into words that we can relate to and identify with and say, yeah, that's how I feel, right? Mm-hmm. And so this, this brings us to the, the purpose of poetry in the sacred in whether it's in sacred texts or in liturgy or even in the the mystical poets and that is the experience of the divine presence really is ineffable it's not something that can be put into words right yeah you know and there's a a sense in which you look at for instance the hebrew bible and one of the commandments is of course that you you don't say the name of god in vain or or really the jews take that literally and they don't speak the name of god right and in fact, even in written Hebrew, or or when a Hebrew is writing or uh, a Jew is writing, they'll they'll put G slash D, right? They don't want to complete <laughs> the the sin of uh, uttering the name of God. And so, right. what they do is, um, it, it's almost what has led to the creation of that Hebrew poetic style, because they they describe all around God. So you you don't necessarily get the thing itself, you get all the things that make it the thing, if that makes any sense. It's like God is this attribute and God is that attribute. And so you get descriptions about God that avoid using the name of God. And what's interesting about some of those descriptions, if you take, for example, the 99 names of God in the Muslim tradition, a lot of these names actually cancel each other out. You know, we say that God has perfect justice and perfect mercy. And then we say something like, what do we try to do? And this is ratiocinative, right? We say, oh, that means that they balance each other perfectly and they don't cancel each other out and they're both there. And really, the mystic would say, no, they do cancel each other out. That's the point, right? Is you can't say mercy and justice and not see a contradiction and realize that neither one of them really tells you what God is or who God is or how God is. Does that make sense? Well, it would for someone who's at all familiar with the mystical interpretations of Scripture. Uh, because someone like a Meister Eckhart, or, or even if you read, for instance, the, the Koans of the, you know, the Buddhist uh, tradition, um, the Zen Buddhist tradition, they're inherently contradictory. And then they're not. It's, it's almost as if you have to see them as one unified all. And that's what they're trying to do, right, is to get us past our duality into an experience of something that's unicity, that is God, that is the, that is the ultimate reality behind all of, these, all of this duality. So if you don't mind, this is a good time to prompt a quote by Meister Eckhart, which is, it's tough pulling it out of the German and translating it in, into English, but I think you can get a sense for the poetic truth that's conveyed here. It says here in English, the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. Oh, I love it. And that sort of conveys to me exactly what you were describing of of seeing things as that one unified whole. Yes, that's what this episode is all about. I love it. Great quote, Riley. So this brings me to another point I wanted to bring up, which is when it comes to, that's mystical poetry, but when it comes to the sacred text, starting there, why are they in poetry and how are they used? 
because it turns out that this idea of reading the scriptures to yourself silently is fairly new. This is not how scripture was meant to be used originally. Scriptures were meant to be read in liturgical settings out loud, and as a matter of fact, many people couldn't read for themselves, and they're supposed to have a transformative power, the experience of hearing scripture, and as a matter of fact, something like the Quran, for example. The Quran means literally the recitation. We, we think of it as the title of a book, but it just it's just Arabic for recitation, the, rec- the recitation, Al-Quran. And so you hear the recitation, and it has this power to transform you. I don't know if you've ever listened to some Quranic recitation. This is really the highest art in the Muslim tradition, or even some Sanskrit being recited. I, I found a YouTube channel where I listened to the Bhagavad Gita being recited in Sanskrit, even though I can't understand it, because again, it's the experience of hearing the poetry that is moving and, and potentially transformative. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. And I, I, as you could take the same for the, the Hebrew Bible, if that was recited out loud, you would start to pick up on uh, cognitive uh, similarities or cognates of, of sound, synonyms, homonyms, all those things that would open up the, un, the eyes of your understanding, the ears of your understanding to, to new meaning within the scriptures. And this was a very common refrain within the Hebrew Bible was to to have these parallelisms where one word might sound like another word, and it's a, it's a play on words intentionally to have you derive additional meaning from the scriptures. And particularly if you had an active reader who really understood those those play on words and those parallelisms, they could really highlight that for you. And I have to imagine that's what a, a good reader would do. And it's interesting to note that even some of those rhetorical features that you've mentioned even show up in the parts that aren't poetic, and in other words, in the parts that are in prose. All of that is still present. So even the prose parts of the Bible and other sacred texts have those rhetorical flourishes that add to the experience of the rest of the reciter or the listener in a liturgical context. Well, and they actually serve the purpose of helping the reader to interpret interpret meaning beyond just the surface. And so if you hear a word that is a, a synonym of another word or a homonym of another word that you heard earlier, it might, it might cause you to hearken back to the old verse where you thought you heard that synonym or homonym and, and try to use those as parallel scriptures for additional meaning. So whether it's prose or, or poetic that, uh, that's being recited, the device can be used both ways. And they both, the one may point to the other, and they both point to God without necessarily being able to express in words what God is, because God is ineffable in that sense, right? Well, I'd love to hear some examples, Chris. Uh, you're, you're obviously more of an authority on on some of the Islamic tradition stuff. And I know within the Sufi tradition in particular, poetry figures very prominently. It does. You know, the, the Arabs, even pre-Islam, have a rich tradition of poetry. But let's go into a little bit, what are the poetic scriptures? We've talked a little bit about the poetic nature of scriptures in our own tradition. There are entire books in the Bible that are poetic, that are actually poetry, right? And then there's the poetic nature of the Quran. But let me back up and go through a little bit of what are some of the oldest scriptures that we have, or or what are some of the scriptures that we have that are perhaps best known, and in what what order they occur, uh, at least to the best of my ability chronologically. 
And so I think about the oldest texts that we have that are sacred texts. And well, first there's the, one of my favorites is the Gilgamesh. And the Gilgamesh is one of these ancient Babylonian Mesopotamian texts that the writers of the Bible used in, in putting together the Bible, taking familiar stories, for example, the story of Noah, the story of the flood, at least, and, and a character like Noah shows up in the Gilgamesh. And this dates back to, we have these clay tablets that go back to three, 4,000 BC, whereas the oldest uh, extant uh, Bible manuscripts only go back to what, the maybe three, 300, 600 BC at, at most, and those would be the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you read the Gilgamesh, Riley? See, only in an English translation, of course, because no one speaks that right. a- ancient Mesopotamian. So you lose some of the the sense of, of the poetry unless you get a very skilled translator. Yes, and I happen to have one here. So first, you know, the, the recensions that we have of the Gilgamesh, they come down to us in Akkadian, Babylonian, Sumerian. And I actually had a teacher that, actually, that studied these languages uh, at Princeton and, and I think at UC Berkeley or maybe, um, you know, he, he had an experience and understanding of these languages, plus Egyptian, Arabic, Greek. He was my Hebrew, Greek, and Latin teacher. And so for me, like you said, I'm looking for the experience, not of when reading some of this poetry, and I'm hoping to provide through this podcast that we can provide an experience, a taste. And as a matter of fact, taste is a Sufi term, the term dalk, which is typically transliterated D-H-A-W-Q, dalk, is what the Sufis would call, in words at least, an experience of God. So it's a taste. And I love that expression. And in fact, it's found in Joseph Smith when he he heard a doctrine and he said, that doctrine tastes good to me, right? It it means that that it has a nice ring to it, that it it rings true. Well, and I think that's what poetry does. It it speaks not only to the heart, but to to the senses that are being possibly ignored or not used as your primary senses when you're reading or even hearing. It might speak to one of your other senses. And I love that... uh, that comparison that you just made, uh, I don't know if it's a comparison necessarily, but that uh, that allusion you made to to Joseph Smith tasting something that that made you know his heart swell or made the spirit within him leap a little bit. Yeah. So in reading from the Gilgamesh, what I'll, what I'll do here is I'll just read from the Stephen Mitchell translation. Stephen Mitchell is a poet in his own right. So what I look for in reading what's originally written in poetry is a poetic translation. And this is something that I think is is important to go into a little bit to help understand where things may show up in in our Bible translation that would be poetry in the original, but maybe not in the translation. And it depends on which translation you choose. And so I'll just go into that a little bit, Riley. You know, there are two, there's sort of two, two approaches, generally speaking, that you can take when translating. One is functional and one is dynamic. And in, in a functional translation, what you're really doing is you're trying to go more word for word. And so it's going to be more literal. In a dynamic translation, and this is especially important when you go into poetry, is it's going to be trying to give the experience, the poetic value of the original in an equivalent expression in the language it's being translated into. So you can see that these two methods are kind of at odds with each other, right? Yeah, the best translators are the ones who can take, for instance, prose that wasn't inherently poetic and still infuse it with maybe some original intent, right? So um, 
for instance, you recommended to me a book which I purchased by Robert Alter, which is just a review of Genesis, a translation of Genesis. And while Genesis may have poetic elements here and there, it's it's more a book of, you know, prose, right? And yeah. so he does a masterful job, however, of taking the underlying poetic elements buried beneath the surface level and still revealing those through his translation while staying true to the literal translation. And, you know, that's, that's the mark of someone who's really good at their craft. Exactly. And he did complete recently a masterful translation of the entire Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament in the Christian tradition. And his was the second ever translation of Job, the first being that of the same translator I'm about to read from the, the Gilgamesh, who is Stephen Mitchell. And I just, I can remember my first experience of reading Job in poetry, and it was powerful. I, I read it to myself first. That was a mistake. I realized this has to be read out loud. I read it out loud to my wife. And boy, was that a powerful experience. It, again, poetry, it has to be read out loud. And this is the experience of hearing it and, and feeling it. That's what it's all about. So if I can go into the Gilgamesh, I think I'll just read from the beginning this, the idea is, again, just to give the, the listener a taste. It says in Book 1, Surpassing all kings, powerful and tall, beyond all others, violent, splendid, a wild bull of a man, unvanquished leader, hero in the front lines, beloved by his soldiers, fortress, they called him, protector of the people, raging flood that destroys all defenses, two-thirds divine and one-third human, son of King Lulbanda, who became a god, and of the goddess Ninsun. He opened the mountain passes, dug wells on the slopes, crossed the vast ocean, sailed to the rising sun, journeyed to the edge of the world in search of eternal life. And once he found Utnapishtim, the man who survived the great flood and was a made immortal, he brought back the ancient forgotten rites, restored the temples that the flood had destroyed, renewing the statues and sacraments for the welfare of the people and the sacred land. Who is like Gilgamesh? What other king has inspired such awe? Who else can say, I alone rule supreme among mankind? The goddess Aruru, mother of creation, had designed his body, had made him the strongest of men, huge, handsome, radiant, perfect. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, you can you can hear poetic elements in there and maybe even some poetic structure, but it, it's it's amazing how much, you know, you can... You can assume things have changed, and, and we have a we have an understanding of poetry in the West that is is maybe not fully mature with a worldview of poetry. There's poetry of sound, where the ends of verses you know rhyme with each other or something like that, or there's couplets that that rhyme with each other, and then there's there's poetry of ideas. Um, there's poetry of feeling and then poetry of senses, so that there's ways that ideas can be related to us in a, in that artistic sense without things needing to rhyme necessarily, right? I think that should be obvious, but it's worth saying. Yeah, did you notice too in this uh, excerpt I read from Gilgamesh, the, you can, right in that opening passage, you can see the whole arc of the hero's journey. Did you notice that? Mm. He goes in search of immortality and he finds what he went for and he brings it back to his people and he's a great king. And somewhere in there, it deals with him finding Utnapishtim, the survivor of the flood, which would be a Noah-like figure. 
It's really interesting. Yeah, now that you bring that up, it, it becomes more clear. So then, you know, moving through a, a timeline chronologically, we come to the Vedas, which are the most ancient scriptures in the Hindu tradition. And these are actually hymns. And what's interesting about them is they sometimes even include philosophical and theological precepts, and yet they're in poetic form. So, and we'll see that too, we'll, we'll come to some philosophers in the West who wrote poetry that at least has some religious context. And it's interesting that when poetry isn't propositional, that you have philosophical concepts given in poetry. And, and why do you think that is, Riley? What would you guess? Well, because it speaks to a different place of your understanding, as we said earlier. And, you know, the, I guess a good example of this, in, in the book of Judges, there's this character named, and I'm not sure if it's pronounced Jael or, or Yael, but it's J-A-E-L, and it's this woman, if I remember the story right, who um, a man comes in unto her who is, uh, you know, he, he's, he's an enemy, and sort of forces himself upon her and, and imposes upon her to feed him and take care of him and whatnot. And then while he sleeps, she drives a spike through his temple. And then this is celebrated by, you know, the, the Hebrew people as being a heroic act. Well, this same exact uh, story is in two success, successive chapters of, I think it's the book of Judges. And so in chapter four, for instance, it has the, the prose version, which is more kind of like the historical, literal version of the story. And then in chapter five, for some reason, the exact same story is repeated, but in poetry, in poetic form. And so why would that be the case? Other than to try to enlighten or, or give you greater understanding because it speaks to a different place. I love that. I love how the scriptures do that. And that's a really good example where you see two consecutive chapters telling the same story, one in narrative form, one in poetic form. That's a good example. If you don't mind, Christopher, I'll, I'll just read those two passages from the two successive chap chapters that I just pulled up to illustrate the difference and give the listener an opportunity to experience how poetry can actually enhance the experience for them. Please do. So in, it's, the first one is in Judges chapter 4, and verses 17 through 21 are in prose uh, style. So it says, Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. So you, I'm just going to interlude here. You can already tell this is very matter of fact. It's just establishing baseline facts. So it continues, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said, please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by you and asks you, is anyone there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Okay, so again, very matter-of-fact. That's the prose um, account, right? Judges chapter 4. Now, what translation are you reading? I couldn't tell you. I'm reading this straight from a Hebrew website. Um, okay. So I'm not sure. 
Um, and you have a poetic translation of the poetry? Yeah. So here's the poetic translation. This is from Judges chapter 5, verses 24 through 27. And this is the same event, mind you. So keep in mind all the things that happened in the matter-of-fact way before. Okay, here's the new one, the poetic one. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of, of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. That's a really different experience, isn't it? Totally different experience. Even if I just want to know what the story is, I like the second one better. I know. It almost makes you feel like you're in the room because, yeah. because of the, the description of the, the visceral description of, you know, his body falling limp off the bed onto the ground and, you know, just all of that very, that, that descriptive visceral language, it brings it to another level. By the way, I did find that uh, that translator's reference, Christopher, in that uh, in that poetry from the website on the Jerusalem Post, and it is just English Standard Version uh, translation of the Bible. But you can still get a sense for what it communicates in a very different way than the prose on the prior chapter. How about that? That you know, some translations of the Bible do better at uh, providing you know verse portions in verse than others. And and one of the interesting things about the King James Bible, by the way, is the poetic value of the entire text, even those parts which aren't in verse. Right? It, it really is beautiful in its language. And so, actually, when I think of studying from the Bible, I go to something like the New Revised Standard Version. And that's mostly because the translators had better manuscripts, not necessarily because they were better translators than the King James uh, Version translators. But when I want to have an experience, uh, a liturgical experience, whether it be at church or whether I want to have an experience on my own, then I might consider reading instead from King James and, and even reading out loud. Maybe I remember reciting to myself, and I think I'll read here when we come to it, the the Lord is my shepherd, that 23rd Psalm. Yeah, and I, I do almost the exact same thing. I have three versions of the scriptures that I utilize uh, for different things, right? So um, what, one of them can illuminate the other too, depending on you know what it is I'm looking for. But I also use NRSV, New Living Translation, and King James. And, and certainly if I want that that experience or that feeling of, of the poetry, the Bible, I go to the, uh, the King James. One of my favorite books of scripture from the, is from the Hindu tradition, and it's actually, it's, it's included in the Mahabharata, which is 10 times longer than the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. And by the way, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer were considered, in some sense, sacred texts by the ancient Greeks because that is where they got their morality from. That's that's how morality was taught through those poems. But in this book, in the Bhagavad Gita, it's actually some say it was added later to the Mahabharata. Others say it's actually part of the original poem. But it's the most popular, I guess, of of uh, and not just in the West, but even in the in the Hindu tradition, one of the most popular books of scripture. And so there's a there's a, a famous verse because when Robert Oppenheimer 
in the project uh, that, what is it called? Manhattan the Manhattan project. project. Yeah, Robert Oppenheimer in the Manhattan Project, when he witnessed the detonation of the first bo atomic bomb in what was the test, he said, and he was quoting, he's someone who studied Sanskrit, the language in which the Bhagavad Gita was written, and he quoted from his own translation. I shouldn't say quote, he, he didn't quote it. He actually gave his own translation. He said out loud, now I am become death the destroyer of worlds. And some have said that this is a mistranslation. I would call that a misunderstanding. Someone cited online, I am all-powerful time, which destroys all things, and I have come here to slay these men. Even if thou dost not fight, all the warriors facing thee shall die. And this is because Arjuna, who is a, a warrior and whose, whose dharma or his duty is to fight, is shrinking in this story because the people he's fighting are in his own family. This is a family feud that has become this big war. And Krishna, who's a, an, an incarnation of Vishnu, you could an avatar of Vishnu, you could think of this as um, similar to the Christ, right? God incarnate is telling him, look, it's not up to you whether people live or die. That's up to me. It's up to you to fight because you're a warrior and that's your duty. And this is a passage that actually, I'll read a little bit more of the context. It's a passage that is similar in some sense to the passages on the brother of Jared in the Book of Mormon, because the brother of Jared sees the finger of the Lord, talks to him, mentions that he saw it, asks to see more, and God shows himself in his fullness. And so Jared enters into the divine presence and is so overwhelming to have that experience. And that's the experience Arjuna has. I'm reading again from a translation by Stephen Mitchell. Arjuna said, I see all gods in your body, and multitudes of beings, Lord, and Brahma on his lotus throne, and the seers and the shining angels. I see you everywhere with billions of arms, eyes, bellies, faces, without end, middle, or beginning. Your body, the whole universe, Lord. Crown bearing mace and discus, you dazzle my vision, blazing in the measureless massive sunflame splendor of your radiant form. You are the deathless, the utmost goal of all knowledge, the world's base, the guardian of the eternal law, the primordial person. I see you beginningless, endless, infinite in power, with a billion arms, the sun and moon your eyeballs, the flames of your mouth, lighting the whole universe with splendor. You alone fill all space. And the three worlds shudder when they see your astounding, terrifying form. Multitudes of gods approach you, palms joined in dread and wonder. Multitudes of sages chant to you hymns of deep adoration. The storm gods, the gods of light of sky, dawn, and wind, the angels, the saints, the demigods, and demons all gaze at you in amazement. Your stupendous form, your billions of eyes, limbs, bellies, mouths, dreadful fangs, seeing them, the worlds tremble, and so do I. I'll just stop there. He goes on and on in describing the overwhelming experience of the divine presence when it's shown to him in full. And then Krishna says, and it reads in the, in the translation of Stephen Mitchell, the blessed Lord said, I am death, shatterer of worlds, annihilating all things. With or without you, these warriors and their facing armies will die. And so there it is, actually quite similar to Oppenheimer's translation. Yeah, not bad. I mean, I'm reading another translation that's fairly close to that, but may illuminate just a little bit different understanding. It says, Time I am, destroyer of the worlds, and I have come to engage all people with the exception of you, 
the Padavas. All the soldiers here on both sides will be slain. So he's talking about that inevitability of of death and how Arjuna really has no control there too. And so his job is just to be Arjuna the warrior. It's worth mentioning, by the way, uh, in a podcast connected with Latter-day Peace Studies, that this text is often misunderstood as being a martial text, when in reality, it's clear in the text that the battlefield that's being mentioned is a symbol of the battlefield within us. And so much like in the Islamic tradition, there's the idea of the, the greater jihad, which is an internal struggle, which reminds me of the quote again from David O. McKay. The greatest battles of life are fought out daily in the silent chambers of the soul. And so that's what's going on here in the Bhagavad Gita is an internal struggle between, you know, personal desires and duty. And so that's another example, and it's a powerful example of the power of poetry in evoking images of, again, an, an ineffable experience of the divine presence. because. Come on, we can't take this stuff literally, right? I mean, I know that there are images made, whether statuettes or whatever, of this kind of, I mean, and you can't really. I mean, there, there are these ideas of having multiple arms or mouths and fangs and whatnot. But the sense that I get, at least reading this, is something beyond description, something that's, that's not in any of those words. Beyond time and space. I've got, I've got actually a picture of Krishna in the middle of my Nepalese singing bowl. Oh, what's that look like? I wish I could show you, but it, it's essentially, you know, thousands of arms in multiplicity and different uh, levels. So there's kind of like the foreground, the midground, and the background. And there's just hundreds of arms in each of those levels. And then it, uh, it goes back to a, a single point at kind of the top of the image. And from that point descends all of the heads of Krishna. So there's like multiple faces coming down to the main foreground picture. Um, it's just an attempt to give you a visual of what Arjuna was describing. Well, that's not bad, Riley. Maybe we can do a podcast on, on the visual arts, even though this isn't a visual medium. Thanks for describing that. Sure. So going through some of these other scriptures, you have the Upanishads, which are explanations of the Vedas. They're philosophical, and yet they're poetic at the same time. You have the Ramayana, and then we come to the Jewish Bible. And there are books, there are entire books of the Jewish Bible that are poetic, right? You have Job, you have Psalms, Psalms. you have Proverbs, mm -hmm. Ecclesiastes, song of songs. Yeah. The, the Song of Solomon. Yeah, so... I thought we'd read some examples from these two in poetic translations, right? So the first poetic translation of Job was actually into English, was actually made by Stephen Mitchell, the same translator I've been reading on some of these other texts. Have you had an experience of reading that in verse, the book of no, Job? No, that, that sounds fascinating. There are now several translations in verse, at least three. So you have Stephen Mitchell's, then Robert Alter's, and there's one other one, and the name of the translator escapes me. One of the interesting things that came out for me in, in reading this translation, which is different from going to, it's a lot different from going to the Gospel Doctrine class and, and discussing this in that context and, and from the King James translation. And I don't know that the translation alone does this, but 
what, what struck me the most out of this experience is how Job wasn't patient. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'd love to hear some of that. Do you have some in front of you? Yeah, let me read from the beginning here. This is from the very beginning of Job, the curse. Finally, Job cried out, God damn the day I was born and the night that forced me from the womb. On that day, let there be darkness. Let it never have been created. Let it sink back into the void. Let chaos overpower it. Let black clouds overwhelm it. Let the sun be plucked from its sky. Let oblivion overshadow it. Let the other days disown it. Let the aeons swallow it up. On that night, let no child be born. No mother cry out with joy. Let sorcerers wake the serpent to blast it with eternal blight. Let its last stars be extinguished. Let it wait in terror for daylight. Let its dawn never arrive, for it did not shut the womb's doors to shelter me from this sorrow. Oh! Man, Job sounds pissed. Isn't that powerful? That's not the same experience you get reading it. And even, again, what is really a translation that has poetic value, the King James Bible has poetic value, but it's not the verse experience of the original. Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure, you know, and again, I haven't read it, but now I'm looking forward to, but I'm sure there had to be a certain amount of license taken, nevertheless, staying as true as you can to the original, right? Isn't Again, that's the mark of a skilled translator is one who can take the existing the existing text and, and extract the poetry into a different language while maintaining the character. Yeah, you know, he's he's got to stay faithful to the original and at the same time faithful to the poetry, to the experience of the original. And when I share from the, the Quran, I'll I'll share from a, a, another translator that I that I think does really good work. Again, these are poets. You need someone who not only can read poetry, but who can reproduce it. So in another book in the Bible that's poetic, of course, is the Psalms. And I actually have some Psalms translated by Stephen Mitchell. And I actually, I love the the 23rd Psalm as I learned it as a boy in the King James translation. But I'm going to read from Stephen Mitchell's translation just to provide a little bit different of an experience. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me on the paths of righteousness so that I may serve him with love. Though I walk through the darkest valley or stand in the shadow of death, I am not afraid, for I know you are always with me. You spread a full table before me, even in times of great pain. You feast me with your abundance and honor me like a king, anointing my head with sweet oil filling my cup to the brim. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will live in God's radiance forever and ever. Hmm. Yeah, he doesn't actually take too much license there. There's a couple additional phrases that were added, but it it stayed really true to the original. uh, uh, And by original, I'm reading from the King James Version, which of course is not the original, but uh, is a much more faithful literal translation. But uh, yeah, that's beautiful. I like that a lot. You know, one of the things that Stephen Mitchell does and, and something that he points out is, and, and he has a book that isn't a book of poetry, but it's his latest book. It's called Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness. And in that book, he expands on the story of Joseph that's told in the Bible. 
he actually does this with the Gilgamesh too, because with the Gilgamesh, for different reasons, with the Gilgamesh, we have fragments. So we're missing part of the story. So as a poet, he gets to do his part in inventing what's missing. And so that's, otherwise you're reading fragments and that's, you know, that can be valuable in and of itself. I've read the fragments of Sappho and, and enjoyed them, but I would love to see what, what somebody like Stephen Mitchell would do in filling in the blanks, right? And with the, in the case of the, what was I talking about? Jeez. So you have Gilgamesh and what was the other one? Oh, sorry. And in the case of Joseph and the way of forgiveness, Stephen Mitchell points out that the language of the Hebrew Bible is so compressed that a translator has to unpack it necessarily. And so what he does is in that spirit, he unpacks that story and tells us more of the details of it. And it's a beautiful book. It really is. I think I told you the experience I had, and, and this may or may not relate because I'm not familiar with the relationship between, for instance, Arabic and Hebrew, but I know that uh, Arabic has many, many meanings for each word. Uh, a gentleman that I met when I was on vacation in Mexico told me every word in Arabic has 50 meanings, and it's all dependent upon the context in which they're used. Um, and, and that's what would help you decide what the meaning is. And then even then you have some license to determine what it means for you. And in, I've listened to enough commentary on the Hebrew Bible to understand that there's a similarity there in terms of being able to understand words differently depending on context and even subtle things like pronunciation. Yeah, you know, when, when it comes to Hebrew and Arabic, they are sister languages. They are from the same language family. A lot of expressions are similar. Even the word for poem and or for poetry and and uh, poet and and hair, as I mentioned earlier, are going to have cognate equivalents and between those, you know, between Arabic and Hebrew. And yes, you know, when it comes to Arabic, you have one of the things that makes learning Arabic hard is every word can have, you know, maybe not every word, but many words can have up to fifty different meanings. And then you also have so many words where you might have 50 words that have the same meaning. And so there's that. And the, so the, the, the poet translator has his work cut out for him. And he has license. Again, the, the point is to reproduce the experience of reading the original. And so to share one more example uh, from the Bible, I'll share from Song of Solomon. And this is from the Robert Alter translation that we mentioned earlier. Chapter 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your loving is better than wine. For fragrance your oils are goodly, poured oil is your name, and so the young women love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me to his chamber, let us be glad and rejoice in you. Let us extol your loving beyond wine. Rightly do they love you. Yeah, it's very easy to read that or listen to it and it's it's very easy to get the mistaken um, impression from listening to that that the surface level represents what's meant to be conveyed below the surface. So, mm. yeah, I mean that's an extremely symbolic. Oh yeah, piece of literature, right? I mean. A lot of people have criticized the Song of Solomon and said, oh, that's, that's not inspired, it shouldn't have been in the Bible, and so forth, because they're reading it as if it's some, you know, 
sexual expose between a lover and his target or something like that, you know, and you're just like, geez, you're missing it. You're just totally missing it. And this is something that we don't see a lot of in, you know, Christian or Hebrew scripture where these, these sorts of romantic illusions are made, you know, anything beyond bridegroom and bride is is really kind of outside the box when it comes to Christian and Hebrew scriptures, um, using that as a metaphor. Uh, although they exist, but within the Sufi tradition or the or the uh, Arabic tradition, the Islamic tradition, I should say, that's a pretty common metaphor, isn't it? It is. You know, this these verses remind me of what will come later in both the Christian and Muslim traditions. You get poetry from the likes of St. John of the Cross, and Rumi, for example, Meister write, Eckhart, Meister Eckhart, that they're going to express an experience of the divine in in terms of a lover, right? In terms of and, and the yearning for the experience of the divine, in terms of a yearning for the beloved. And and I hope to share an example. Some of the uh, some of the sister saints of of the Catholic tradition. Um, uh, what's her name? Saint someone of Avila. Saint Teresa of Avila. Saint Teresa of Avila. Yeah, some of the some of the Catholic mystics on the uh, from the female side of things in the in the Catholic tradition, like uh, what freak? I just forgot her name again. Saint Teresa of Avila. Teresa. <laughs> Another ca- Catholic mo- mystic on the female side of the equation, Saint Teresa of Avila, often spoke in these metaphorical terms to express her desire for the divine love. And, and she spoke in these sort of romantic terms uh, beyond the, the limited scope of what the Bible has gotten into. And so it does start to, you know, show itself a little bit more as time goes on. Yeah. I, I hope to read an example of a translation of my own from St. John of the Cross. There's, there, I have two more examples from scripture, from sacred texts, and then I want to move on to philosophical poetry and mystical poetry. This one's from the Tao Te Ching, which is the, the Taoist scripture, and again, in a translation by Stephen Mitchell. And it harks back to what we talked about in a previous episode. At we, I read a couple of quotes I remember from Alan Watts and from, I think, St. John of the Cross, expressing the idea that you couldn't really know God and that someone who says they know God, that they actually comprehend God. And comprehend does have the meaning of understanding, but that's its second or third meaning. The first meaning is actually being able to kind of wrap your your arms around, I mean, to wrap your brains around maybe something fully and to actually completely grasp it, right? And so this expression from the beginning of the, the Tao Te Ching is found uh, in, this idea is found expressed in the beginning of the Tao Te Ching. And it reads in the Stephen Mitchell translation, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. Free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only the manifestations. Yet mystery and manifestations arise from the same source. This source is called darkness. Darkness within darkness, the gateway to all understanding. And so you can really experience in, the, in those verses, those few verses, a sense of the ineffable, a sense of duality versus unicity, right? Right. Yeah, no, I love that. That's great. 
The last example I have from scripture is from the Quran, and this is one of the most mystical verses, if not the most mystical verse in the Quran, which I think speaks, I think it can speak to anyone because the, because of its its esotericism. It's not really clear what the literal meaning of it is, and yet you know it's saying something profound when you hear it. And the light verse is again from Ayat An-Nur, the Surah of Light. Uh, Quran 2435, and it reads in the Thomas Cleary translation, which is the best example of an English translation that, that gives you the experience of what it's like to read the Quran in the original because of its poetic value. And Thomas Cleary, recently deceased, was a, a translator best known as a translator of texts from the Eastern tradition. It reads, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. The simile of God's light is like a niche in which is a lamp. The lamp is a globe of glass. The globe of glass, as if it were a shining star, lit from a blessed olive tree, neither of the east nor of the west, its light nearly luminous, even if fire did not touch it. Light upon light, God guides to his light, whomever God will, and God gives people examples, and God knows all things. Any scripture that deals with light gets my attention every time. Right? We have this idea that God is light, that uh, light is intelligence and truth, right? So these, these scriptures really speak to me. And again, that's a scripture that just speaks to me at a visceral level. What was your experience of it? I love that answer, Riley. Yeah, it, I, I sat there in silence for a few seconds. It's just something that I wanted to feel rather than try to understand. And uh, let that be an example to the listener. That's such a perfect response, right? It was so often, and of course, here we're talking about it, and we 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 have to have something to say. But yes, just sit with it. I love. And that's that. the magic of poetry: is half the time you should be contemplating uh, your your feelings and and your understandings, and maybe not try to overthink it or to strive for something that you can express, but just sit with that ineffable quality of of what the poetry can be for you. Yeah. Having gone through the examples that we wanted to share from the sacred texts, I just have some examples, just a few examples from philosophical poets. Again, the irony of expressing philosophical ideas, which are usually propositional in poetry. And and from mystical poets, at least one, the translation I made of a, a poem from St. John of the Cross. One of my favorite poems of all is the, the Nature of Things, or On the Nature of Things, De Rerum Natura in the original Latin. This is by Lucretius. And Lucretius is thought to be an atheist. You know, he's an Epicurean. And it's interesting because he's trying to convert someone through this poem. And instead of teaching philosophy propositionally in order to speak directly to the prospective convert's heart, he chooses poetry. And he gives what I find is a fascinating description of how things came to be the way they are without without necessarily having to explain it in terms of the gods did X, Y, and Z. And yet, it begins with an invocation to the muses. And, And we know that Epicurus spent hours in the temple every day. So I don't know that it's really fair to call them atheists, but here's here's the beginning of that poem, the invocation of the muses from a beautiful translation in rhyming couplets that was actually the first translation made by a woman. 
and it was made back, I think, in the 1500s and wasn't published until the 90s. And so I have a copy of that, and it's one of the treasures in my own library. Fair Venus, mother of Aeneas' race, delight of gods and men, thou that dost grace the starry firmament, the sea, the earth, to whom all living creatures owe their birth, by thee conceived and brought forth today, when thou, O goddess, comest, storms fly away, and heaven is no more obscured with showers, for thee the fragrant earth spreads various flowers. The calmed ocean smiles, and at thy sight the serene sky shines with augmented light. Then doth the spring her glorious days disclose, and the released life-giving west wind blows. Thy power possessing first birds of the air, then thy approach with amorous notes declare. Next, when desires the savage herd in sight, they swim through streams and their fat pastures slight, to follow thee, who in seas, rivers, hills, in the birds, leaves, bowers, and in green fields, instilling wanton love into each mind, makest creatures strive to propagate their kind. Since all things thus brought to light by thee, by whom alone their natures govern be, from whom both loveliness and pleasure springs, assist me while the nature of these things I sing to Memmius, whom thou, goddess, hast with all excelling gifts and ventures graced. Wherefore, sweet language in my thoughts infuse, and let not war's harsh sound disturb my muse. Make sea and land a quiet calm possessed, for only thou with peace canst mortals bless. Since Mars, thy mighty god that rules in arms, lies in thy lap, bound with love's powerful charms, and resting there his head in full delight, O oh, thy rich beauty feeds his greedy sight, hanging with amorous kisses on thy face, whilst thou, O oh goddess, does this god embrace, while he doth in thy sacred lap remain, sweet peace for Rome by gentle prayers obtain, for neither can we with a quiet mind in time of war pursue the work designed, nor can brave Memmius, full of pious cares, for public good neglect those great affairs. It's pretty sweeping, isn't it? Seems to cover a lot of ground. It is. It is. And that's, an, that's another beautiful example, even from what is considered to be an atheist, and again, invoking the muses. And this is, this is about creation. This is about bringing, uh, bringing that god of war to peace through Aphrodite's love, right? Through Venus, and, and how, that, how that feminine power conquers that masculine power, speaking archetypally, and it's just beautiful. And, and the birds and the bees and whatnot, there's so much there to unpack. I, I don't get the sense that you're listening to someone speaking from that atheistic point of view, if in fact that was what that was. Because it's taking that sweeping view of creation and you know, you're, you're listening to her. You can feel this. It's very visceral. You can, you can hear and experience the herds and running along the green pastures and the fish in the waters. And anytime creation is referenced, I mean, my mind hearkens to a creator. And so I don't get the sense for any kind yes. of, you know, non-theistic uh, treatment there. To me, I, and maybe this is, the beauty of language and of poetry is that the beholder, the listener, is at liberty to do with it what they want. That is such a good point, Riley, that too, yeah. And, you know, it is an invocation of the muses. It is about creation. You read it right. And, and in fact, of course, for a Latter-day Saint audience, this, this whole text, you know, that, that explains things in a more materialistic way is not as 
offensive, let's say, as it would be to to a more idealistic point of view. Uh, yeah, does that make absolutely. sense? I find it, it's, it's funny because I remember someone asking me why I would be interested in reading something so atheistic and, and that's not my experience of it, just like it wasn't yours. And that was from, that was from someone from our own tradition. Another philosophical poet is Dante. And now Dante is writing in the Catholic tradition and he's writing about the cosmos, right? It's, it's a cosmic poem and it's a, and it's a, well, I don't know if I can say it's a, an epic. Travis might object. We did record a whole episode on the Commedia, on the Divine Comedy of Dante, and I refer the listener to that. But I would like to read just from uh, the, the beginning of the poem in the translation of Robert Pinsky. By the way, that translation of, of uh, Lucretius was of Lucy Hutchinson. I forgot to give her her due. She's actually best known for a biography of her husband, who was a political and military figure, as I recall. In this translation from Pinsky of the beginning of the Divine Comedy of, of Canto I of Inferno, he actually reproduces the Terza Rima of Dante in what's called consonantal rhyme in English. The only English version I know that has uh, actual uh, end rhyme you know, in, in Terza Rima would be Dorothy Sayers, and I, I prefer Pinsky. In Pinsky's translation, Dante writes, Midway on our life's journey, I found myself in dark woods, the right road lost. To tell about those woods is hard, so tangled and rough and savage that thinking of it now, I feel the old fear stirring. Death is hardly more bitter. And yet to treat the good I found there as well. I'll tell what I saw, though how I came to enter I cannot well say, being so full of sleep. Whatever moment it was, I began to blunder off the true path. But when I came to stop below a hill, that marked one end of the valley, that had pierced my heart with terror, I looked up toward the crest and saw it. You know what I just noticed about this? I'm so sorry. It's hard to stop because he reproduces the Terza Rima. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? You can't find a stopping place because that's what this poem does. It just keeps going and going. So I think I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah, you almost have to identify something ahead of time. Yeah, it's hard. To, it's actually hard to find a stopping place. But notice how Dante opens up and he brings us right into it. Midway on the path of our life, he says, I found myself lost in a dark wood. So he wants to bring us into the experience. And we've all had that moment, haven't you, Riley, of, of feeling, and, and we may not be midway through the path of our lives, but we find ourselves on occasion lost in a dark wood, the right path having been lost. At least I have. Certainly, yeah. I mean, and that's that's part of the, I mean, if you want to put it in archetypal terms, that's the hero's journey. And it's it happens yes, successively. Indeed. It's not it's not a one time event. You know, the whole life does not represent one journey. There's many journeys, and we're we're constantly uh, coming up against that for sure. Yeah, I think we cycle through heroes' journeys in our larger heroes' journey in our lives. Well, Christopher, if you don't mind, I'd like to read a selection here of just a couple short poems from a German poet named Rainer Maria Rilke. This translation oh, is I love by Rilke. John J.L. Mood, who's spent the better part of a couple decades studying Rilke. Now, this isn't actually religious, right? Oh, no. No, no, no. Well, I mean, and yet, it's it, funny. It'll use occasionally religious language, but it's not really meant to be right. explicitly religious. Uh, but it's certainly sublime. In fact, these are, um, these are poems out of a, a book on love and other difficulties, is what this one's called. 
But uh, oh, what a great title! Love and other difficulties. <laughs> no, it's certainly I know Rilke, and he certainly does bring the reader into the an experience of the sublime. So on this one, um, I'm going to read these in both German and English um, because they're short, and you can get a sense for the feeling of both of them. Um, and the first one I'll read is is called "Being Silent." Schweigen. Wer inniger schwieg, ruht an die Wurzeln der Rede. Einmal wird ihm dann jeder erwachsene Silber zum Sieg. Über das, was im Schweigen nicht schweigt. Über das höhnische Böse, das es sich spurlos löse, ward ihm das Wort gezeigt. Being silent. Who keeps innerly silent touches the roots of speech. Once for him becomes then each growing syllable victory. Over what in silence keeps not silent. Over the insulting evil, to dissolve itself to nil, was the word to him made evident. If that isn't spiritual, I don't know what is. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Is that, you know, he's using this spiritual language to convey the meaning of something that isn't necessarily spiritual or explicitly spiritual. And so it's it's a way of relating to the text for someone who, or, or he's giving and an entrance into the text for someone who's naturally spiritually minded. And I'm going to read one more, and I think this one is so apropos to the time we're living in right now. It it expresses the desperation of one. It's, this one's a dialogue, and it, it's a very simple dialogue. It's It's someone who's questioning the poet and saying, how can you continue to write poetry when there's such difficult things happening in this world? And, and then the poet, oh, the poet answers. It's the, the problem of evil in secular terms, right? Yeah, yeah. And so this one is this. Uh, these, go ahead. These poems they speak to the human experience, and the human experience is of a spiritual being having having a human experience, as we say in our tradition. And so they are spiritual ultimately. This one is titled "The Poet Speaks of Praising." O sage Dichter, was du tust. Ich räume. Aber das Tölliche und Ungetüme, wie haltst du's aus? Wie nimmst du's hin? Ich räume. Aber das Namenlose, Anonymie, wie rufst du's, Dichter, dennoch an? Ich räume. Woher dein Recht, in jeglichen Kostüme, in jeder Maske sein? Ich räume. Und das, das Stille und das Ungestüme, wie Sternensturm dich kennen. Weil ich räume. Oh, speak, poet, what do you do? I praise. But the monstrosities and the murderous days, how do you endure them? How do you take them? I praise. But the anonymous, the nameless greys, how, poet, do you still invoke them? I praise. What right have you in all displays, in very mask, to be genuine? I praise. And that the stillness and the turbulent sprays know you like star and storm? Since I praise. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's interesting to me how it's not the poet that's speaking the poetry <laughs> in that one. Yeah. The poet simply says what he does. And it's the person who's questioning the poet that puts together some of the most beautiful poetic language there. I love it. But it answers the question also for me of what poetry can do for you in a time when things are really difficult 
And, and yes. you, you talked about the problem of evil. Gosh dang, we have so many challenges in this world right now. And if you turn on the news, you think that, you know, the second coming is right around the corner because everything is, is going to hell. I mean, you've got what's going on in Afghanistan. You've got the COVID stuff. You've got social disturbance and unrest on a scale we haven't seen for a long time. And and so you just think everything is is going badly. And, you know, you could ask someone who's trying to enjoy the sweetness of life or at least convey those messages, how can you possibly do this stuff when everything's going so badly in the world? And, yeah. you know, the attitude or answer of the poet in this case is, I can continue to praise. Yes. Gratitude, peace and poetry, all of that. Yeah. I love it. So in... In conclusion, right, I mean, we have one more category we said we cover, mystical poetry. So not from sacred texts, not from these philosophers or philosophical poets, but from Christian contemplatives and Muslim contemplatives known as Sufis. And a lot of these guys, it's interesting to note that they were actually also philosophers, at least in the, in the Muslim tradition, not, not so much in the Christian tradition. You do have St. Thomas of Aquinas, who was a philosopher theologian but especially in the, in the Islamic tradition. And there are far more women, I think, in the contemplative tradition in terms of those writing poetry that, that I know of in the Christian tradition, although the Muslim tradition did have its great Sufi poetesses as well. So I just want to name a few names uh, for, the, for the listener to, to be able to make reference to some of these. And some of them will sound familiar and some of them may be new. You have St. Francis of Assisi, St. Thomas Aquinas, Meister Eckhart, whom you brought up, Julian of Norwich, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Teresa of Avila, you also brought up, St. John of the Cross, Christ, uh, Christina Rossetti, Mother Teresa, and someone we bring up a lot in the podcast, Thomas Merton. And so those I gave those in chronological order from the, the 1100s to the 1900s. Those are just some of the, the biggest names that I could think of in terms of Christian contemplative poets. Are there any that I didn't mention that, that you can think of, Riley? Well, that's a, that, that's a great review and a good starting point, I think, for people who are maybe just entering into this idea of, of contemplative poetry. And that, that's, a, that's a great list right there. Yeah. So I wanted to share from one example from among these poets, and it's my own translation of a poem from St. John of the Cross. It's important to understand that, as, as was mentioned earlier, and I think it was in connection with the Song of Solomon that I read from in the beginning of that poem, and that is that the poet is writing of an experience of a beloved who is God, and of a yearning for that beloved, and of an encounter with that beloved, and, and losing herself. Even though St. John of the Cross is a man, he's writing archetypally as, a, as, a, as the feminine seeking the masculine divine. You have all the way back to antiquity, the idea that, that the earth is feminine and the sky is masculine and that the two come together in the sacred marriage, what's called the hieragami. So I'll read from my own translation of St. John of the Cross. On a dark night by St. John of the Cross. On a dark night, craving, burning with love, oh, what fortune, I went out unnoticed my house already still, safe under darkness by the secret ladder disguised. Oh, what fortune, under darkness and under cover, my house already still. 
on the blessed night in secret, seen by none, neither saying anything without any light or guide but that burning in my heart, he guided me, more certain than the light of noonday, where he waited on me, he whom I well knew, in a place where no person appeared, O night that guided me, O night dearer than dawn, O night that brought together the lover and her beloved, the lover in her beloved transformed, in my excited breast, the whole of which I kept for him alone, there he slept, and I showed him my affection, and the cedar fan flamed us. The breeze from the parapet when I parted his hair with its gentle hand wounded my neck and suspended all my senses. I stayed and forgot myself. I reclined my countenance on my beloved. Then everything stopped, and I surrendered, leaving my cares among the lilies, forgotten. Yeah, that reminds me of a... Um, I mentioned Teresa of Avila earlier, and she gave a short commentary on one of her favorite scriptures from Song of Songs. And, I mean, it's even said that on her deathbed she was reciting from the Song of Solomon in preparation for that rapturous kind of, you know, going to meet her 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 bridegroom, right? Yes, and, yes. Uh, so, Beautiful. And again, for whether that was, you know, literal or figurative for her, it doesn't matter. I mean, she was a nun who lived in in that in a convent type lifestyle. So obviously, you know, that's that's different than a lot of people. But her description of it is I'm gonna read it here. It says, But when this most wealthy spouse desires to enrich and comfort the bride still more, he draws her so closely to him that she is like one who swoons from excess of pleasure and joy and seems to be suspended in those divine breasts, sustained by that divine milk with which her spouse continually nourishes her and growing in grace so that she may be enabled to receive his comforts. She can do nothing but rejoice. Awakening from that sleep and heavenly inebriations, she is like one amazed and stupefied. It seems to me that she can say these words, your breasts are better than wine. Beautiful. You know, and you can take that way too literal and and totally miss the message there of the, what they're trying to do is essentially convey the joy and rapture that comes from being in the embrace of, of God again with the only thing they can compare it to on earth that might even compare, you know, <laughs> which right. is that, that union of, of husband and wife or, or spouses. Well, Riley, the last poem that I'd like to share is from Rumi. Rumi was a, a Persian poet from 13th century Iran. And it's interesting to note that he is the best-selling poet in America today. That's an English translation, of course, and usually in the translations of Coleman Barks. And they're not the translations I recommend. I recommend those of Nader Khalili. Nader Khalili was the founder of Cal Earth here in California. He was an architect from Iran who saw that everywhere in the world, people made their own homes out of whatever materials were available to them. And he wanted to teach that and make that possible for people here and everywhere to be able to just build their own house from whatever materials were at hand and have no mortgage. And the houses that he builds are actually really interesting to see and, and to look at. And they, and they actually become stronger over time, whereas the kinds of houses we build in the United States actually deteriorate over time. So I'll read from one of his translations of Rumi, and this is a favorite poem called Come, Come, Come. Come, 
Come, come, my endless desires, come, come, come. Come, my beloved, come, my sweetheart, come, come, come. Don't talk about the journey. Say no more of the path one must take. You are my path. You are my journey. Come, come, come. You stole from this earth a bouquet of roses. I am hidden in that bouquet. Come, come, come. As long as I am sober and keep talking about good and bad, I'm missing the most important event, seeing your face. Come, come, come. I must be a moron missing this life if I don't cast my mind in the fire of your love. Come, come, come. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's fascinating how how really these metaphors can be extended to describe some transcendent truths. Yes, they're erotic images, and yet they describe an experience of the, the of the divine, of the transcendent. Right, it's been such a pleasure to to share some of this poetry with you and in this conversation. Is there anything you'd like to add in closing? No, I mean, I guess the only thing it's it's prompting me to do is to pick up some original texts and maybe even dabble in translation myself. Yes, I, I'd love to see some of that from you too, Riley. I enjoyed your reading of the German of Rilke. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Well, Riley, it's been a pleasure for Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Have a great week.